Gresham College presents Towards a Ministry of Singing by Professor Christopher Page. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second lecture in my third year as Gresham Professor of Music. And this series, if you remember, is called The Christian Singer from the Gospels to the Gothic Cathedrals. And before we go any further, let me introduce the singer who's going to sing for us this afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, Catherine King. Well, I begin by taking you down the stairs into one of the Roman catacombs. This one runs under the old Via Latina. Now, some of you, I'm sure, have made a journey like this before, so you know what to expect. The air becomes increasingly chill and dank as we descend. The earth under our feet is hard and flat, trodden by centuries of pilgrims and, of course, robbers and thieves. The corpses have long since been removed from those very narrow niche on the walls, so they're empty. A thin cable feeds a few electric bulbs. The light they give is, of course, very feeble, but it's enough to save us from the terrors experienced by St. Jerome in the fourth century when he was still a boy and went down into one of the catacombs. Here and there, he recalls, a little light is sufficient to give relief, but the very silence fills your soul with dread. Well, we're making our way into part of this particular catacomb that remained undiscovered until 1911. Suddenly, we find ourselves before the painting that you can see on the first page of your handout. It commemorates a young man named Trebius Justus, and he appears at the summit of the picture seated between his parents. And they're holding a cloth displaying items of plate, perhaps their offerings to a local church. The very lowest stage of the painting emphasizes the family's prosperity again by showing Trebius inspecting baskets of produce from the estate brought by various slaves, as you can see. In the middle range of the picture, he appears with a codex, that is a, a book constructed, of course, from sheets of papyrus, normally, or papyrus, bearing text. And other materials for reading and writing appear around him, floating in the air, so to speak. A, a book appears to his right, its page is open, there's a large rectangular chest for books, two pen cases, and a round basket for scrolls. Well, today, my subject is the rise of a Christian ministry of singing. Now, by that, I mean the formal appointment of one or more people to sing in services of worship within at least the greater churches, which often means the cathedrals, by virtue of their fitness for that task and the common desire of all to have it done correctly and well. And what I'd like to suggest to you, what I want to try and put across, is that the charge of being a singer, the charge of singing, grew out of an earlier charge or ministry 
of reading. Supported by just those skills that the picture of Trebius Justus celebrates, then they are the fundamental pillars of a Roman education, grammar, Latin, rhetoric. So this means that the roots of Christian singing, viewed as an office, lie with the emergence of scripture. That's to say, an established body of texts for an appointed reader to read. Now you can see from the picture of Trebius Justus and how remarkable it is that this rather fine painting lay in the darkness for so many centuries before being rediscovered. You can see from that picture that rich Christians in Rome were not expected to abandon their wealth, their lands, and their traditions for a life of voluntary poverty. Many did, but they weren't expected to. But you can also see from that picture what the ability to read and write meant to those same wealthy people. Their studies in grammar and rhetoric, on which many a career, of course, in public office was based in the Roman world, their ability with those literate skills were as important as their precious tableware, their slaves, or their fertile estates. So we begin with Scripture, the New Testament, and the question of how that canon of texts emerged. As you can imagine, the question has attra attracted a very great deal of interest and attention for generations. And so has the related matter of whether any written record was made of the sayings of Christ during his own lifetime, which would presumably have been in his native language of Aramaic, which can now be glimpsed behind the Gospels or even reconstructed. Attempts have been made, of course, to reconstruct a kind of pre-Gospel set of sayings of Christ. It seems to me that the core date to fix in our minds as we investigate this ultimately fascinating, I think, but complex topic. The core date is 200 AD, the verge of the third century. By that time, the sayings of Christ had been circulating in a tradition that was still in some respects fluid for the best part of 200 years. Not, of course, generally, in Christ's native tongue of Aramaic, but in, in Greek. They were continuously repeated and refashioned in the sermons delivered by the president of the worship assembly, or as we would now say, the priest. The tradition was made and remade in the community's presence. Everything one heard was believed to derive, by the faithful anyway, in a sequence of face-to-face -face exchanges from the voices of the apostolic generation and ultimately from the voice of Jesus of Nazareth himself. At first, there was no need, really, for a text. And I can imagine that many of the first Christians would have agreed with the early author who said, in a slightly different context, I did not imagine things out of books would help me as much as the utterance of a living and abiding voice. Anyway, before we go any further, let's hear another kind 
of living and abiding voice. I've asked Catherine to sing a large part of the psalm, Deus venerunt, you don't have the text on the handout by the way, Deus venerunt gentes, O God, the holy temple is defiled, the heathen has laid Jerusalem on heaps. And the psalm will provide, as a psalm provided in my first lecture in this series, a necessary reminder of the simplest and perhaps the most ancient form of psalmody, recitation on the single pitch with the occasional inflection. Sina se voru 
for much of the second century, the situation with regards to the emerging gospel canon was still unstable. In Rome, about the year 150, and so about 120 years after the crucifixion, the writer commonly known now as Justin Martyr refers explicitly to what he calls readings from the memoirs of the apostles. But those memoirs can't simply be equated with the gospel canon we know and left at that. Justin cites, for example, at least one episode, the appearance of fire in the Jordan during the baptism of Christ, which is definitely non-canonical. He derived it from one of the so-called apocryphal gospels, of which, as you know, there are many, which was not received into the New Testament. Justin also used a book known as the Acts of Pilate, and you won't find that in your New Testament either. What's more, the gospels didn't yet exist for Justin as stable texts. They just didn't. If you look at the citations he makes from what we would call the fourfold gospel canon, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find that he often combines passages that are now in different gospels, and he often expands them with clarifications. And what's more revealing still is that when he quotes the Psalms, for which, of course, he has the standard Greek translation, the Septuagint, he, he quotes exactly. But when you look at what he does with what we know as the Gospels, 10 of his citations are exact, 25 are slightly varied, and 32 are appreciably different. So it seems that he turned to a written text when consulting the Psalter, the Psalms, but consulted a much more fluid and still, to some extent, oral tradition for citing what he calls the memoirs of the apostles, a gospel canon that was still in the process, if you like, of congealing on settling. But by about 200 AD, the date I asked you to fix in your minds, it does become possible to discern the nucleus of a New Testament canon, and papyrus fragments begin to reveal that the fourfold gospel we know was coming to be recognized as a project for scribes to undertake. They would sit down and copy all four as a set. And I think it really can't be a coincidence that the earliest known reference to an order of readers called lectores in Latin appears just after 200. And therefore, at the end of the half century when a gospel canon first comes into view as a systematic undertaking for copyists. The emergence of appointed readers arose with the consolidation of a fixed gospel canon text for them to read. That would be the first stepping stone, I think, that I would like to lay down. And of course, the churches were getting themselves organized in all kinds of other ways at this time. By the third century, which we've now moved into, just after 200, Christians can be found seeking public places of worship, claiming parity with polytheists, or pagans if you prefer.
The process is obviously difficult to trace because there are very few relics of Christian monumental architecture before the fourth century, either in terms of archaeological sites or inscriptions, and much of, the, much of the material lies in places where it's very difficult now for archaeologists to do work at all, such as Libya um, or Morocco. Uh, the traces of early Christianity are, as you might expect, especially rich in Roman Africa, very much one of the richest provinces of the, of the empire. But even in the lifetime of St. Paul, so we're reaching back to the 40s and 50s uh, of the first century, even in the time of Paul, the private houses I said quite a bit about in my last lecture were not the only places where Christians might meet to worship. Uh, in Paul actually pe preached in a hall in Ephesus and a warehouse or horeum on the outskirts of Rome is mentioned as a meeting place in the non-canonical Acts of Paul. Old bathhouses, both public and private, make a significant but sporadic appearance as places adapted for Christian meetings. And they had an obvious advantage. You can imagine what it is. If they're still working, they're plumbed in. So you can create a baptistry and have the ceremony of baptism there. At least one ancient church in Rome began, as archaeologists have discovered, as an insertion into the large bathhouse of a private residence. Another very ancient Roman church bears the revealing name St. Syriac in Termis, St. Syriac in the Baths. And I think it's no accident that Justin Martyr, whom I spoke about a moment ago, lodged in Rome above a bathhouse. Now, by the middle of the third century, so we're advancing gradually, the readers, we've still heard nothing about singers, you'll notice, the readers had a, a ritual space allotted to them in the church of Carthage. Carthage will uh, figured prominently in my first lecture and will sporadically appear again today. It is one of the great churches of the late Roman world and in some ways is a core place for the Latin church, uh, rather like, like Rome. It is a major center. One, one, you know, one can easily forget the importance of Roman Africa. I've known a number of historians of early Christianity who, who have made this same point. It is easy to forget the importance of that Mediterranean littoral of Africa in the Roman world. So much of what I have to say today will take us to, uh, to Africa, to Tunisia, in fact. In two of his letters, Bishop Cyprian of Carthage twice mentions the reader's platform, or dais, akin to the raised platform for magistrates, orators, or judges. There, says Cyprian, the reader is easily seen by the brethren. In another letter, Cyprian compares the reader to a light which will be placed high on a candelabrum, readily seen by all and illuminating the room. Through the conspicuous radiance of his glory, he may read the commandments and gospel of the Lord to all people. So this means that well before Cyprian's death, and he died in 258, the Christians of Carthage, in what is now Tunisia, gathered for worship in a place with a fixture for the reader, something they could stand on to be seen. 
which was presumably placed at one end of a space being used as a proto-nave. We're talking about just the kind of structure that we have here at this moment. People in a nave looking at someone who is raised and reading. I'd now like you to hear another chant that probably represents a very early layer of music for Christian worship. You will all have heard of it. It's the Te Deum. You have the text pretty well complete on the handout. It's an ecstatic hymn of praise, often performed to celebrate a victory or a miraculous cure at the shrine of a saint. The music is essentially a monotone recitation with formulae to rise onto the recitation tone and leave it. And there's a, it's widely believed that this is a very ancient piece of Christian ritual music indeed. The Te Deum was often performed to the sound of bells in the Middle Ages, and that's what you'll hear in this performance, which is in fact not given by Catherine, but is from uh, a recording. The soloist is Stephen Charlesworth, but many of the singers in the choir answering him are friends of mine who are professional singers who are also soloists, really. Uh, Charles Daniels, James Gilchrist, Stephen Harold among them. So here is the Te Deum. Red. 
As you can perhaps imagine, it's very difficult to record a chant with a bell going because you know how recordings are made. You make them in relatively short sections and do takes and you edit them together according to the best of the takes. And what you find, of course, is that the bell is in the wrong place for the take that you need. So I have to tell you that in that recording, the bell was sounding 45 years before the singers because the bell comes from a sound recording um, from the archive, and the singers were recorded in the 1990s. And great fun we had doing it, too, I can tell you. Well, the letters that I quoted earlier, this is from Cyprian of Carthage, <coughs> reveal that two of the readers in that great city, Aurelius and Celerinus, were young men. Aurelius is described as an adolescence and new in years as yet, in Anis Adhuc Novelis. Celerinus was also appointed while a young man. You can imagine that one of the principal sources that I'm using here, endlessly fascinating it seems to me, are of course epitaphs, fragments of the graves of people who died in the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries AD, some of which survive 
many of which were copied by early medieval visitors to Rome and survive that way. It's a kind of detritus of stone and text scattered over the lands of the Roman Empire. When we begin to find the epitaphs of readers in Roman churches, as we do from the third century onwards, we learn that many of them were still in boyhood or in early, early adolescence when they died. Epitaphs from Italy, Spain, Gaul, and Africa confirmed that many acquired the title of reader while still adolescents. In fact, the average age of the Roman readers who died before the age of 25, as revealed by inscriptions, is just 15. One was only five. And you might therefore suppose him to be too young to have begun his studies even with a grammarian, to have begun his basic schooling with a pedagogus, with a pedagogue, especially if he'd been set to learn the passage more or less by heart beforehand. Well, there are very few areas of life, it seems to me, where the continuities between pagan and Christian social attitudes are clearer than they are in the education of children. Both Christian and pagan epitaphs reveal the fondness with which parents would praise the intellectual accomplishments of their offspring who died too young. As you know, there's been a great debate about what sense of childhood did people have before the modern period? What awareness did people have that these little creatures were not just adults waiting to happen, but formed a particular uh, state, if you like, of imagination and intelligence requiring a particular response? Anyway, these epitaphs uh, very often commemorate, I quote, a conspicuously educated young man. They honor a boy who was, and I quote, remarkably clever and able in his studies or the commemorated youth who was outstanding in learning and wise beyond his years. Your handout shows the sarcophagus of M. Cornelius Statius from about 150 AD. You can see it at the bottom after the Te Deum. You have that, uh, have that there. What you can see is that on the left, Cornelius is being fed, breastfed, while the father looks on, holding in his left hand a scroll to suggest the intellectual contribution he will later make to his son's development. The father is then shown again holding his son, followed by a representation of the boy, now much older, driving a small chariot pulled uh, by a goat. And in the last scene, the boy declaims his lesson before his seated father. Perhaps it's a passage from Virgil or from Cicero. And I like to think that the image with which we started of the Christian Trebius Justus surrounded by text and pens is a Christian equivalent. Why was the task of declaiming the most exalted documents of the faith, the Holy Scriptures, entrusted to boys, or at best to young men, holding in fact one of the lowest clerical positions? To be a reader is only a little bit above to be a grave digger or a doorkeeper? Well, there's one very simple, obvious answer, and I'm sure you thought of it before I asked the question. Clergy began their careers at the lowest rung of the hierarchy and then ascended as high as their abilities or their patronage could take them. 
And this was eventually what happened throughout the Christian West. There was a, a hierarchy. You began at the bottom and you worked your way up through promotion. And there were, well, there were obvious advantages to ensuring that the lowest grade of clergy, let's say a reader, would impose exacting duties of scriptural reading and study upon new entrants to the clerical life. There was no better way to train receptive minds still of an age to be schooled than with a weekly task of working through a biblical passage with a teacher, looking to the sense, marking it up, thinking about the grammar, all in preparation for giving a reading. But I don't think that's the whole story. Surely it was also the sound of youthful voices that mattered to the Christian communities. The rulings of early Christian councils sometimes insist that a reader should continue to the age of puberty, but no further, at which time they should either marry or be induced to live in perpetual continence. A recent historian of childhood in early Christianity, a very fascinating subject which has been attracted a lot of attention recently, I think may be right to suggest that, and I quote her, the extreme youth of certain readers suggests that it was the child's voice rather than any reading skills that was valued in this context. The same might be said for another proposal that, and I quote, in the early church, the holy innocence which we nowadays ascribe to choir boys rested on boys who were reading God's word aloud to their audience. So it was perhaps considered especially appropriate, strange though it may seem now, to have the Gospels voiced by a candid and even artless voice that was not darkened, or in the most strict sense of the word, deepened, by the beginnings of a sexual identity with the onset of puberty. Indeed, a Christian commitment perhaps allowed many parents to hear the voices of their male children as they read aloud, in a new way. They ceased to hear those boyish voices as a promise of what might be won, parents hoped, in later life of public office, for which rhetorical skills were essential. Instead, they began to hear those same voices as an expressive testimony to what was already possessed and might, parents feared, be all too readily lost, a simplicity and sexual innocence. We sometimes actually find this inscribed on the tombs of readers. In the year 384, a reader named Leopardus died aged 14 and was commemorated for his wondrous innocence. In Gaul, a reader named Tigridius, year of death unknown, was remembered as a chaste boy. Another named Severus was an innocent reader. In 6th century Africa, a reader was called Castalinus, the little chaste one, who died at the age of just six. Did these readers also sing? I think they must often have done so. You see, the use of the term lector, meaning a reader, but to mean as reader-singer, or indeed just a singer, proved remarkably durable in some of the Western churches. Take 4th century Milan, a great church in an imperial capital. It was when understood there that, and I'm quoting St. Ambrose of Milan, its greatest 4th century bishop, 
Some persons are more apt for giving readers readings and others for psalmody. But Ambrose never uses the term cantor in any of his writings. The singers in his church, I, I repeat, one of the most important in the late antique world, were called lectores. They were called readers. Looking around the Mediterranean, we find that a council convened in 572 in what is now northwest Portugal ruled that no person should sing or read psalare aut legale unless they've been ordained a reader. And there may be echoes of the lector's musical duties in some of the oldest treatises on the grades of clerical office. One of them, in existence by 700, requires the reader to sing the lections, lecciones cantare, where the intended meaning of cantare may indeed be musical. Well, for reasons that will become clear, it's now time to hear a chant that goes well beyond the form of, res of monotone recitation to a developed melody. This is the Easter gradual, Hike Dies, this is the day that the Lord has made. And I've taken it from a manuscript prepared early in the 12th century for use in the Holy Sepulchre at Jerusalem. So what you're hearing is the version of the chant copied in a Crusader manuscript. Obviously, once the, when uh, Jerusalem fell, against the expectation of everybody in the year 1099 uh, for the first, in the First Crusade, it became necessary to create a structure of Latin churches in what we call the Holy Land. This is the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. People had to be ferried out with books. Singers had to go out to create staffs of singers in the various churches. Greatest of all, of course, the Holy Sepulchre, containing both the reputed site of the crucifixion of Christ and his tomb. So this is the gradual for Easter Day, as it appears in a manuscript prepared for the Latin Kingdom, the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem, early in the 12th century.
I wanted you to hear a melody rather than an ornamented form of intonation because we are now, at last, on the verge of meeting people appointed called singers. At some time in the fourth century, we don't know exactly when, the bishops of various sees in Western Asia Minor, covering much of what, of course, is now Turkey, gathered for a synod in Laodicea, the metropolitan church in their province. Now today, the site retains very little to suggest that it was ever a great place, nothing to remind one of the colonnades that were once there and the basilicas. But nonetheless, it was a great synod. And in this synod, the bishops rule for the first time how singers are to behave. And there are six chapters that they issued touching upon singers, whom they give the Greek title, because the proceedings are in Greek, psaltes. Let's review very briefly the five things they say about singers. Number one, only regularly appointed singers capable of reading from parchment should be allowed to ascend the pulpitum and sing in churches. Number two, psalms should not be performed one after another, but always interposed with a reading. Number three, singers and readers must not wear the orarion, a form of stole, when they read or sing. Number four, this is very familiar to anyone who's ever seen uh, a medieval set of instructions about singers. Clerics with a ministry of the altar, presbyters and deacons must not attend taverns, nor must the other orders of subdeacon, reader, singer, exorcist and doorkeeper. Five, there should be no delivery of non-canonical or homemade psalms, but only of canonical books. Well, those chapters are very succinct in the original. They don't say much more than I've just told you. But they do suggest how the bishops regarded their singers, how the singers regarded themselves, and how they were to be recruited from now on from literate men who passed through some form of induction. For the first time in Christian history, the Laodicea chapters sound the note that becomes so familiar as the centuries pass. Singers often lack both discipline learning and intelligence and are constantly to be kept under surveillance. My apologies to Catherine, who is of course a professional singer. One chapter that I paraphrase for you reveals that singers had ambition to wear the long stole or orarion, widely associated with deacons, which of course is a much higher order. This desire for the vesture of a higher order may owe something to rivalry between Christian singers and the colleges of pagan hymnodists. After all, paganism is not dead. They have their singers too, some of them organized in quite prestigious colleges. And what's more, there's a great concern in the fourth century, the very last glimmerings, you might say, of the Western Roman Empire. There is a great deal of concern with vesture, both in the military and in the bureaucracy, people are very much concerned with what they wear as a status, uh, as, as a mark of status and office. The chapter concerning regularly appointed singers intercepts the church, I think, at a crucial moment in its extension of jurisdiction over ritual singers. From now on, only canonical singers 
are to be inducted into the office of psalmist, canonical singers. This suggests, doesn't it, that singers had sometimes been admitted hitherto on an ad hoc basis without sufficient vetting of their abilities. From now on, they've got to be able to read from parchment, deep terra, and there's no hint, though, of any investigation into their reputation for piety and no apparent scrutiny of their musical abilities. Previously, it seems, singers were selected from a broad constituency that either included illiterates or those accustomed to use cheaper and ephemeral copies of texts, not on parchment, but on papyrus, forming a continuum with amulets, prayers, hymns, financial accounts, and the other papyrus detritus of the late Roman world. Singers from now on have got to be able to construe a written text and divide the words correctly. The texts have to be on parchment, and that sounds like expensive copies of the scriptures to me, perhaps to be inspected by the bishops for their textual accuracy, canonicity, and orthodoxy. They may even be counterparts to the large and handsome manuscripts of the fourfold gospel and other texts that come into view during the fourth century. So, I'd like to close more or less where I began, and that is in one of the great cemeteries of Rome. We begin in the fourth century and into the fifth to find epitaphs of deacons who were regarded as fine singers. It seems increasingly that throughout the Western churches it was often the deacon who was required to be a gifted singer. And one mark of the status of these men is that their epitaphs are often in verse. You don't tend to get that with the epitaphs for acolytes, doorkeepers, gravediggers, exorcists, and so on, people at the bottom of the clerical pile. One is the epitaph in verse of a Roman deacon named Redemptus, who was interred in the fourth or fifth century. So finally, we've reached a named person who was a singer, and we even have a sketch of the original inscription or rather fragments of it, which you have on your handout. The text calls upon the Christian community of Rome who must be wondering why Redemptus has vanished from their midst, and it's because the kingdom of heaven has suddenly snatched him away. And you can see the text is set out very elaborately in hexameters. I mean, this is verse, this is the meter of Virgil, Stringe dolor lacrimas queris plebs sancta redemptum, and so on. This is a verse epitaph in the meter, and indeed, of course, in the language of Virgil. Grief hold back tears. People of holy church, do you seek Redemptus, the deacon? The kingdom of heaven has suddenly snatched him away. He put forth sweet honey with nectared singing, celebrating the ancient prophet, King David, with serene music.
Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.